Hi, my name's Amy, and I'm doing the second Bible reading for today. The passage is taken from John chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Thanks, Amy. My name's Ollie, I'm one of the ministers of our church and I'm going to be preaching for us today. But as we begin, let's come before God in prayer, so please pray with me. Great God above, we do thank you for your word. We know that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And so, Father, would you be active through your word now as we sit under it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a man called Kanishka Raphael. He's a British-born Australian with Sri Lankan parents. He spent time growing up in Canada before moving to Australia at the age of eight. And for most of his life, for the first 21 years of his life, he was a devout Buddhist. In fact, he was so devout that as he, the whole time as he was growing up, uh, he and his sister and his uh, parents used to do Buddhist prayer chants every night before bed. But do you know what happened? When he was at uni, a friend gave him a copy of John's Gospel, um, the Bible. And after reading through it, Kanishka says that he became, in his words, a very surprised Christian. He says he didn't have any interest in Christianity at all, yet all of a sudden God revealed himself to Kanishka through the Bible and through Jesus. 
Now, that alone is quite interesting, the transferal from devout Buddhist to Christian. But his story doesn't stop there because Kanishka ended up becoming a minister. And then he ended up becoming a bishop. And now he's the new Archbishop of Sydney. And it's quite a strange and unexpected transformation. A strongly practicing Buddhist, now a high-ranking Christian leader. And in fact, it's so strange that in a recent interview in the uh, ABC in Sydney, all the host wanted to do was talk to him about his Buddhist background and how ultimately, at heart, all religions are just the same. Now, of course, Kanishka didn't agree at all because if they were, then why did he bother changing? Why go from a Buddhist to a Christian if they're all the same? But nevertheless, I think the assumption there is quite a common assumption in our pluralistic, multicultural Australia. And so hence our question today, God, aren't all religions true? Why must I pick one? And I think this mindset can be summed up with this image, with the image of a mountain or the concept of a mountain. And the illustration goes like this. God is at the top of the mountain and all of the different religions are just different pathways up the mountain. They might have different ups and downs, different twists and turns, but at the end of the day, they all reach the same end goal, the same destination. And so it doesn't really matter whether you take path A or path B or path C. It doesn't really matter whether you're a Buddhist or a Christian or a Hindu. You still wind up at the same destination, at the top of the mountain with God. But this assumption that all religions are true is built on the idea that they're basically all the same. That at heart, they all say the same thing. Be a good person, love others, be kind to everyone. And of course, there's some truth to that. Uh, there are moral similarities between the different religions, which we should expect if the law of God is written on the human heart, Romans 2. But see, if they are all the same, then they can all be true. But of course, if they're not actually the same, and if in fact they actually say extremely different things, then it's not possible for them all to be true. And what we find when we put any level of effort into it, any level of investigation, is that actually the different religions are vastly, vastly different. Now, there's lots and lots of examples I could give, but we don't have time to discuss it all. So perhaps let me demonstrate that point by going to two of the most foundational points you can have. What the different religions say about God and what the different religions say about us. And so, do you know what the different religions say about those things? Well, let's start with what they say about God. Buddhism says, essentially, that there's no God. Christianity and Islam and Judaism say there's one God. And Hinduism says there's 33 million gods. Now, I don't know about you, but those figures don't sound too similar to me. Even those of us who might have struggled with maths know that zero is a different number to one, and that both of those are a vastly different number to 33 million. And so in terms of foundational questions, you can't get more foundational than God and whether God exists. And yet, even on something so foundational, they're so different. And they, they're not just different, they're contradicting. Because either there's no God, or there's one God, 
or there's 33 million gods, but they all can't be true. They're different. Or what about us? What do the different religions say about us when we die? Well, Buddhism and Hinduism say that when we die, we're born again, we're reincarnated. We're born again either into a better life if we've lived well now, or into a worse life if we've lived poorly now. And this cycle happens over and over again. Born, then die. Born, then die. Born, then die. But Christianity says, actually, we only have one life. And when we die, we either go to heaven or to hell. For those who have rejected God, they go to hell, where they'll face eternal judgment for their rebellion against God. But for those of us who trust in Jesus, then there's heaven, an eternity spent knowing and loving and serving God forever. Islam teaches something fairly similar, though with some differences. Uh, The focus in Islam in particular is on heaven being a paradise. It focuses particularly on us and on our pleasure in heaven rather than on God. But so again, do you see how different those views are? They contradict each other. Either we only live once, this life is it, or we live and die, live and die, live and die, but they both can't be true. And see, when we put any level of thought into it, when we look below the surface similarities, it quickly becomes clear that not all religions can be true because they say opposite, contradicting things. And so the question then is which one is true? Which one should we pick? Now at this point, some might think, well, you might be right, but why focus on the negatives? Can't we just focus on the similarities instead? But see, the reason we can't do that is because it's too important and it's too dangerous. It's a bit like this. Imagine if I offered you these two pills and I said to you, are these basically the same? Now, you'd probably say, yeah, yeah, they are. They're both small, they're both round, they're both white. But you know what those pills actually are? One of them is aspirin, and one of them is arsenic. One will help you, one will harm you. And see, at that point, when you find out that they're different, then the similarities are irrelevant. What you need to know are the differences. And if you can't tell the differences, then you are going to die. And in the same way, though there may be surface level similarities between the different religions, actually, when you get down to it, all religions are not the same. And all religions are not a different pathway to the top of the mountain. Some of them are dead ends that will leave you stranded. But knowing which religion is true is actually far more important than knowing which pill is which or knowing which pathway gets you up a mountain because this isn't just about your physical life but your spiritual, eternal soul. This is not just about life here and now but about your eternity. And so then, which one is the right pathway up the mountain? How do you know which one to pick? 
Now, we don't have time to look at every religion in detail, so what we're going to do is think about Christianity, and we're going to consider a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to do that because if the resurrection didn't happen, then you can remove Christianity from the list. Christianity is not true, and it's not the one you should pick. But if the resurrection did happen, then you're forced to engage with it. You're forced to figure out what that means. You can't just ignore it. This is certainly what a man called Lee Strobel concluded. Lee was an award-winning investigative journalist, and he was also a strong atheist. But much to his surprise, one day his wife became a Christian, and he wasn't too happy about it, and so he set out to, quote, liberate her from this cult. And so he put his investigative skills to work to try and prove that Christianity is not true. But do you know what happened? As he looked into it, as he considered the evidence, as he considered it all and weighed it up, he realized that actually the evidence all pointed towards the resurrection being true. And so even though he set out to disprove Christianity, he actually ended up becoming a Christian. And this is what he says about, uh, about why he did. He says this, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. That meant that following him was the most rational and logical step I could possibly take. And his story is quite a fascinating one and uh, you can read through his thought process in this book here, The Case for Christ, and it was on your screen with the PowerPoint as well. So do check it out. But Lee's story shows us just how central the resurrection is. But of course, the problem is, how do we know, how can we prove something that happened 2,000 years ago? How can we ever know, how can we ever find out whether that actually happened or not? And so what I want to do is get us to consider three known, agreed upon, non-supernatural historical facts and show how those three facts together actually point to the resurrection being the most logical explanation. And so imagine a four-piece puzzle. Uh, we know what three of the pieces are. They're the historical facts that uh, virtually everyone agrees upon, uh, Christian and non-Christian alike. And what we need is the fourth piece that makes sense of the other three. And so the first agreed upon historical fact is that Christianity grew quickly and early on the foundation of Jesus' resurrection. It experienced incredible growth, uh, thousands and thousands of people within the first few months, and that growth happened on the message of a crucified and resurrected Jesus. Now, sometimes people might think that the resurrection was a myth that was made up much later on, but we know that's not true. Right from the start, Christianity at least claimed that Jesus was resurrected. How do we know that? Well, we have an early creed of Christian belief that can be dated to within months of the death of Jesus, which historically is like gold. I mean, we live in a world where everything is instant. As soon as we do anything nowadays, it goes on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. We take photos with our phones. But we've got to remember that that's not how historical documents work. For example, for Caesar and his Gallic Wars, two of the most important sources are written more than 100 years 
after the events. That's just the way things work with ancient documents. And so we have a source from within months that shows that the foundation of the growth of Christianity was the resurrection. Now, of course, we can argue why that was, but at the very least, it's an indisputable historical fact that Christianity grew quickly and early on the claim of the resurrection. The next agreed-upon fact is that there was an empty tomb. After Jesus' crucifixion uh, his, uh, crucifixion and death, he was put in a tomb and guards were put outside. But a few days later, the followers of Jesus started saying that he had risen from the dead. Now, if you were an enemy of Jesus, what would you do in that situation? If it was me, I'd go, go to the tomb, I'd get the body, and I'd say, look, here's the body, he's not resurrected. Here it is, he hasn't risen. And it would have been so easy to do that and nip the whole thing in the bud. It would have been dead from the beginning. Yet they didn't do that. Do you know what they did instead? Instead, the enemies of Jesus argued how the tomb got empty. They said, oh, uh, the disciples stole the body. Now, uh, we can be quite sure it was empty because it would have been so easy for the enemies to point to the fact it wasn't. And in a minute, we'll consider how uh, some people or some answers people gave for how it got empty. But at the very least, I want you to see how everyone agrees the tomb was empty. And the final agreed upon historical fact is that after Jesus' death and resurrection, hundreds of people claimed to see the resurrected Jesus. Not one or two, but hundreds. One Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about this and he basically says there's 500 people who saw Jesus after he came back from the dead. Go and talk to them and hear what they have to say. Go and ask them what they saw. And now, of course, people have come up with all sorts of answers to explain why that is, and we'll consider some of those in a minute. But what's agreed upon is at least that hundreds of people claimed to see Jesus. And so these are the three agreed upon historical facts. And what we need is a fourth piece of the puzzle that makes sense of all three, that satisfies all three of those facts. Now, uh, people might often say that the disciples lied and made it all up, that that's the fourth piece of the puzzle. Now, leaving aside the fact that people don't die for lies and the disciples of Jesus did die for their claims about Jesus, leaving that aside, that could satisfy point one. It could explain that Christianity grew on the foundation of the resurrection because they lied about it. But it doesn't explain how there was an empty tomb or how hundreds of people claimed to see Jesus. So then, perhaps the disciples stole the body. Have you heard that before? Again, leaving aside the fact that they would have had to go and fight the, and defeat the armed guards standing outside the tomb, leaving that aside, let's just say for a minute that they did do that. What would that satisfy? Well, it might satisfy fact one if they then lied about it, and definitely fact two, the empty tomb, but it doesn't satisfy fact because if Jesus was still dead and they merely stole his body, then how did hundreds of people claim to see him? So we need another answer then. So what about this one? Everyone who saw Jesus was just hallucinating. In their grief, they saw what they wanted to see. 
Now, leaving aside the fact that hallucinations don't happen to hundreds of people at a time, let's just for a minute say that that's what happened. That would satisfy fact three, for sure. And maybe fact one, if it then grew on their lie or the deception about that. But it doesn't satisfy fact two, that there was an empty tomb. And so what we get is that no explanation can satisfy all three of the historical facts except for one, that Jesus really did come back from the dead. See, as unlikely as it might sound at first, it's really the only option we're left with. Now, of course, it is a big topic and there's much more that we could say about it, but hopefully that helps you see at least that actually, just as Lee Strobel said, believing in the resurrection is the most rational and logical step we can take based on the historical, agreed-upon facts. It's the only option that satisfies all of them. But you might be thinking, well, so what? Yes, maybe he did come back from the dead, but that was one man 2,000 years ago. Why does it matter for me? Well, it matters because it makes something so clear about you and about all humans, in fact. It shows us that there is an afterlife. It shows us that there is something beyond death. And that affects you. And so this is something that you need to take seriously. Because if the resurrection is true, then the claims of Jesus must also be true. Because no one else ever in all of human history has defeated death in the way that Jesus has. See, this is not a case of someone dying on the operating table and then being resuscitated two minutes later. This is someone who was brutally murdered on a Roman cross, who was stabbed through the heart, then buried dead for three days no one in all of human history other than Jesus has ever come back from something like that. And so it shows us that this Jesus is someone special, someone we need to pay attention to. And so then what did this special man, this special Jesus, say about himself? Who did he claim to be? Well, one of the places he's most clear about that is the passage we heard read out for us before, John 14. And here Jesus is talking with his disciples about who he is and what he's doing. And this is what he says in John 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. Do you see how incredible that is? What he says about himself, these extraordinary claims that he makes. He gives us three definitive articles, three these. He says he is the way, the only way to God. He's the only pathway up the mountain. He says there's not lots of different pathways that all make it up the mountain and all make it to the same end goal. He says there's not a whole bunch of equally valid pathways. He doesn't say he's one of the ways. He doesn't say he's a way. No, he says he is the way way, the only way. And he says that he is the truth, the only place we can go to for truth about life and death, about heaven and hell, about religion. 
He says that truth can't be found in anyone else. Not the teachings of Buddha, not the teachings of Muhammad, but only in him. He is the truth. And he's the life. Only in him can we have life. Only in Jesus can we find the eternal life we need for our souls. It can't be found through reincarnation. It can't be found through volunteering for charity. It can't be found in working hard and trying to please God. Jesus says he is the source of life. No one and nothing else. I mean, they're quite incredible claims. They're astoundingly absolute and exclusive. He's not just saying he knows the truth. He doesn't just know the way. He doesn't just have tips on eternal life. No, he's the truth itself. He's the way itself. He's life itself. These are big, big claims. And so either he's a nutcase or it's true. And we know that it must be true. It is true because of the resurrection. See, in the resurrection, Jesus has proven that he is indeed who he says he is. Because no normal person could do what Jesus did. He's proven it. And so if the resurrection is true, which it is, then we're left with no other option but to listen to what Jesus is saying, to engage with what Jesus is saying. And in fact, as astounding as what he's already said is, he goes on and expands in more detail, which is perhaps even more amazing. So this is uh, continuing on in John 14, 6 and 7. He says, No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He says, No one can come to the Father, to God, except through him, except through Jesus. That's a big, big claim. See, we might want to think that there's many pathways to God, many pathways up the mountain. But actually, the one at the top of the mountain says, no, there's only one pathway, Jesus, who he's provided. Because that's the amazing thing about Christianity. It's not about what we do, it's about what God has done. God has given us his son, Jesus, so that we might be welcomed into God's family. See, Jesus came and lived the perfect life we don't and then died the death we deserve to die, so that our sins might be forgiven and washed away. But as we've seen, he didn't stay dead, he then rose again triumphant over death, so that all who trust in him might have life, might be able to come to the Father. But outside of his Son, there's no way to God. No one comes to God except through Jesus. And so why must we pick one religion? Well, because the one at the top of the mountain says there's only one way to him, his son, freely given for our sake. But to think that Jesus is one way among many is actually so ungrateful to God for what he's done. I mean, how perverse to have a son given for our sake and yet to turn our backs on him to try and find other ways up the mountain. It's so ungrateful and quite frankly, it's insulting to God. God has given us his son who suffered 
and died for our sake so that we might have relationship with God. How amazing that that's what the one on the top of the mountain would do. And that's the message of Christianity, a message so different from every other religion. It's not what we do, it's not how good we are, it's not how hard we work, but simply what God has done, provided us His Son so that we might be saved. And so the question then is, well, what are we to do with this information? Well, what you can't do is simply ignore it. The resurrection just simply doesn't allow you to do that. The resurrection proves to you that there is an afterlife, that death is not the end. And it proves that Jesus is the key to knowing what's beyond life. And so what you can't do is simply ignore it. Rather, the resurrection forces us to engage with Jesus, to consider what he says and to put our trust in him. And so if you haven't yet believed, if you're still investigating the different pathways up the mountain, then your first step has to be to continue what we've thought about today. You have to figure out what to do with the resurrection. Because if it did happen, and it did, then you have to take seriously what Jesus said. And here, he's so clear. He's the way, the truth the life. There are no other ways to God except for Jesus. And so we are so glad you've joined us today and we pray that you'd continue to come along and you'd continue to find out about who Jesus is and what the evidence points to, what the eyewitness accounts say in the Bible. And so do read the Bible, engage with it, see what it has to say. And then continue, of course, looking into other resources. Do check out books like The Case for Christ that I mentioned earlier. And why not consider coming along to our Life Explored course where you can chat with others and think about what the big questions of life are about and how Christianity answers them. See, considering Jesus and who He is is the most important question we could ever wrestle with. And for those of us who have believed, then what does this mean for us? Well, I think it's a reminder to us, an encouragement to us to not be ashamed. That we can have confidence in the name of Jesus and the exclusive claims of Jesus. See, we live in a culture that's so open-minded that it can sometimes feel a little bit embarrassing to say that Jesus is right and all other religions are wrong. That Jesus is the only way. But that's what we're to do. And one of the great examples of this was our first Bible reading there in Acts 4. It tells us about Peter and John. And what we see here is one of the first sermons in the church, after one of the first miracles in the church, facing some of the first opposition in the history of the church. And see, right at the start as persecution comes, as the enemies of Jesus demand that Peter and John remain silent, what should they do? Well, if Christianity isn't true, if Christianity is simply one of many different pathways up the mountain, then why not switch back to Judaism? If it'll keep these people happy, they aren't happy, why not switch back if Christianity is simply another pathway up the mountain among many? 
but they don't. Because they know that it's true. This is what Peter says in Acts 4. He says this, Salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He stands firm and gives this wonderful statement about the centrality of Jesus. He makes clear that Jesus is central in God's purposes and that apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. And see, this is Peter who knew Jesus as well as anyone, who saw all of the signs and miracles, who witnessed the resurrection who knew the truth and the frailty of his own sin. Remember, just months earlier, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And yet, since then, something has changed. What is it? Well, it's the resurrection. He's seen the resurrected Jesus, and he's come to understand who Jesus is, and that Jesus truly is the way, and the truth, and the life. And so he's not ashamed, he's not embarrassed, he's not intimidated. He just boldly declares that there's no other name in heaven by which we can be saved except for Jesus. And this is what we're called to do, those of us who believe in Jesus. And in fact, not just we're called to do that, but how could we do anything else? If this is true, and if Jesus is the only way to God, then how can we do anything but boldly proclaim that to everyone. And so God, aren't all religions true? Why must I pick one? Well, they're not all true. And only one has the power of salvation. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than Jesus. I'm going to pray, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed Jesus is the key, that he's the only way up the mountain, that aside from him there is no salvation, there's no life, there's no way to you. But we thank you that this way, Jesus, is the way you've provided for us, that you don't leave it to us to work hard to get up, but rather you give us the way to access you. So we thank you, Father, for your generosity. And we do uh, confess our sins for the times we've looked other ways, how perverse it is indeed, that you would give us your son and we would turn our back on him. So Father, we do thank you for Jesus and please be working in our hearts, helping us to cling to him and trust in him and in him alone and to boldly tell others about him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.